0: The following episode of Annals On Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall.
1: Commanding much of physicians' mental space and physical time for administrative duties, we have to think about, well, what are they to give up? And if we looked at that, About four of that six hours per day was spent on administrative tasks that don't require a medical school education.
0: Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former Chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today's podcast discusses two articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine, March 28, 2017. The first is an editorial titled, Designing and Regulating Wisely, Removing Barriers to Joy in Practice. The writer of this editorial, Chris Sinski, joins us on the podcast. She has practiced in Dubuque, Iowa for over 20 years. I've known her for over 20 years. She was very committed to understanding the problems of practice and the lack of joy, has done research on this, and in the most recent years has also served as a vice president of the American Medical Association in charge of trying to Rekindle the joy in practice. Her editorial is in response to a position paper of the American College of Physicians titled, Putting Patients First by Reducing Administrative Tasks in Healthcare. I believe we will really enjoy this discussion, which tells both the frustrations physicians have and the hope that we have in trying to address those frustrations. Chris, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. I just loved your editorial on the ACP position paper and want to discuss first some of the key positions that uh, you cited in, in your editorial. The first area was that ACP recommends that stakeholders develop impact statements that qualify Financial, time, quality, and burnout costs of administrative tasks. I know you're very interested in this and have a lot of thoughts about it, so please expand on that for us.
1: Sure, I'm really happy to, Bob. I think it's like an environmental impact statement. And it's time for us to ask other stakeholders, regulators, standard setters, uh, policymakers, to consider the impact of their policy or regulation on the doability of the work, on the amount of time it takes, on the cognitive workload that it will consume, uh, so that we know what we're trading. Uh, because time isn't infinite, cognitive work space isn't infinite. And if we are commanding much of physicians' mental space and physical time for administrative duties, we have to think about, well, what are they to give up uh, so that they can make room for those new duties? And so I think we we have to be clear with uh, ourselves and with others that there's no free lunch, that if there's going to be a new regulation, we have to understand what does that cost?
0: So that's something that I, I've been worried about for a number of years, and as I talk to physicians around the country, uh, this is a very common problem. I just have a friend who retired at age 65 because the administrative burden had gotten so intrusive that he didn't feel like he could practice the way he wanted to. He was financially secure. He still loved medicine, but he hated the practice of medicine for exactly these reasons. Is this something you hear about much?
1: So, Bob, I think your friend's experience is very common, and one of the things that I worry about is the number of physicians who are leaving the profession, who are leaving the profession to retire early when they love being a physician, but they don't love the administrative work, or physicians who are in early or mid-career who are leaving the profession altogether for a different career altogether. In fact, we did a study that looked at physicians' intent to leave practice. And disturbingly, about 20% of physicians were planning to cut back their work effort in the next year. Nearly a third were planning to leave their current position um, in the next couple of years. But most disturbing, about 2% of physicians were planning to leave medicine altogether altogether. And again, not because they were at retirement age, but because they were leaving for a different work. They couldn't, the work was no longer bearable. And that turns out if about a third of those physicians actually act on that intention, which is what other data would suggest, that translates into 5,000 physicians leaving the workforce. And that's the equivalent of the graduating medical school classes of 40 medical schools. And when you think about how much work it is to establish new medical schools and how many millions of dollars it takes to establish a new school, and we're doing that. And that's appropriate. And I think we've established 10 or 12 new medical schools in the last 10 years. But we also need to look at the other end of the spectrum where we're losing the equivalent of 40 medical school classes to uh, physicians who've left because of burnout. And that's driven in very large part by this administrative burden.
0: Well, a second big administrative burden uh, that you mention is that electronic health records are not really designed primarily for clinical care, but seemingly for secondary administrative uses. And this is something that, again, my friend complained about, but everybody I know complains about. Am I overstating this?
1: I don't think so, Bob. In fact, You know, I think physicians have, in large part, embraced technology when it helps us take better care of patients. And it's my view, and I think this view is shared by most physicians, that we wouldn't give up our electronic health records. But we also know that they are not yet where they need to be. And there's some data that's been discovered recently that I think shines light on this. We had done a study um, with researchers from Dartmouth where we found that for every one hour of direct FaceTime with patients, physicians were spending an additional two hours on EHR and desk work. And we found that by doing a time motion study where we actually train medical students to observe the physicians through the day. And that's the ratio. And despite that, these physicians spent one to two hours every night on their EHR. Another study that was similar in some ways was from the University of Wisconsin. And what they did is they used... Timestamp data from the EHR. So at the back end, they were able to identify again that 50% of the physician's workday was spent on the EHR. And if we looked at that, about four of that six hours per day was spent on administrative tasks that don't require a medical school education billing, coding, documentation, the physical act of order entry. That study found, in fact, that physicians spent nearly as much time on security issues, that is logging in every day, as they spent looking at the problem list.
0: Wow. Now, the, one, one of the great sentences in your editorial is, and I'll quote, at the most basic level, for example, one might ask, what is the value of a signature? Could you expand on that? Because I just loved that section.
1: Well, you know, I'll have to tell you where that came from. I was in my office, and I was going through my paper inbox and my electronic inbox, and I am signing and signing and signing away. And there is no way that physicians can read every single line of every page that they are signing. But when I paused to look at what I was signing, I was signing for things for which my signature did not add any value. At least I would posit that if we studied this, that requiring physicians to sign for diabetic shoes, to sign for hearing aid batteries, to sign even for immunizations and mammograms, that that, to require that that go through the physician is not an evidence-based requirement. And I doubt that there would be evidence if we did the studies to look. That is, I don't think that adds a bit of value. And in fact, I think it could very clearly be determined that it adds hazard, that when we are distracting our physicians with so much signature work, that we are actually creating a hazardous environment that makes it less possible to to deliver safe care.
0: Chris, I know that in addition to um, the work you're doing on uh, improving uh, the practice environment for physicians... You've spent uh, many years in private practice in Iowa uh, and have a close relationship with many patients. How do patients view the distraction of physicians? When you talk to patients or have you noticed with patients that they're concerned about the physician paying attention to them rather than the computer screen?
1: Sure. I think that all of us as physicians have felt that we are doing the wrong thing for our patient if we're spending more time attending to the screen than to the patient. And I think we've also experienced this as patients ourselves. When, when we're the patient and the physician is typing and trying to multitask it is a less desirable situation than when that physician turns and gives us her full and undivided attention. And patients certainly have voiced this, and so lots of anecdotes about that. But what I like is that there's actually been a study uh, that looks at this as well. So at MD Anderson, they did a study where they showed cancer patients videos of a physician and a patient interacting. And those patients rated the care as better and rated the physicians as having more compassion, as having greater communication skills, and showing more professionalism when they were interacting with the patient without the computer in the room. So that's a study that confirms the anecdotes that patients have told us that we ourselves can feel as physicians and as patients, that the care is better when we can give our patients our undivided attention.
0: So, uh, what I want to do a little bit here is reframe the ACP position paper, which is about patients before paperwork, and your editorial as, and make sure that everybody understands that this is not just, oh, the physicians feel overworked, and oh, the poor physicians, but this is really about patients. This is not about physicians. This is about patients, and it's about patients both uh, in each individual visit, but also having enough physicians for the patients who need good physicians.
1: Absolutely. And Bob, you've brought to mind one of many patient examples. And if you don't mind, I'll just share this, uh, this vignette. I was in the examining room with a patient. Uh, they were here with, I believe, some GI complaints, maybe some nausea and diarrhea And patient was up on the table and I had turned to the electronic health record to look for something and to start to document something. And then the patient said something and I was kind of half listening. And I turned and I said, tell me again. And what he was describing was he was wondering why he had a symptom that was a variation on pleuritic chest discomfort. And I think it was maybe when he rolled over it, it hurt on his left side of his chest, something like that. And I just I pushed the computer to the side and I asked him, okay, start over. Tell me again what your symptoms are. And this man, we determined later that afternoon, had a pulmonary embolus. So I had done a CTA after I had paused and listened to him and we found the the PE that then became the first sign of what turned out to be uh, an internal malignancy. But I was close to missing it when I was distracted and only half listening and my mind was framed around his original complaints and I almost missed the key part of the history. So that's my personal anecdote around that. Um, There's also another interesting study, Bob, that relates to this and relates to why this is safer for patients when we can give them our undivided attention and when we can communicate with our team members face-to-face and verbally. So uh, the University of Wisconsin did a study of 155 uh, physicians in primary care, and they found that as the density of verbal communication went up and correspondingly the density of EHR communication, though all those messages we send back and forth to each other went down, clinical outcomes improved. Blood pressure was better. Cholesterol was better hospitalization rates uh, were less, urgent care visits were less, total costs were less. So verbal communication, whether it's doctor to patient with undivided attention or nurse to nurse and nurse to physician, all of that verbal communication is where the gold is, I think, for reaching the quadruple aim. I
0: would agree 100%. Uh, I remember being in medical school and being told that 90 or 95% of diagnosis is taking a good history. I didn't believe it when I was a medical student, but uh, now that I have all these years of experience, there's no question that's correct and that your story is perfect because if you don't get the right history, you don't think to look for the right diagnoses. And we have to do something to allow the physicians to spend the appropriate amount of time at the bedside. There's a really interesting thing in your introduction about the administrative costs of reporting performance measures. Um, I happen to be on the Performance Measurement Committee of ACP, and we look at these performance measures and many that are being used just are not very good performance measures. And they often require a lot of energy, either clicking in the computer or actually hiring someone to keep track of things. But you put a price on it, and I'd really like you to talk about that because that really is going to fold into the ultimate discussion we have.
1: Sure, I'm happy to. Um, there's a study published in Health Affairs by Larry Casolino that estimates the costs of reporting quality measures. And this is just the cost of reporting the measure, it's not the cost of actually doing the care that leads to the measure. And I think that's an important distinction because this is the cost of documenting what we've done. And by that estimation, it was $15 billion a year. Well, that's a big number. What, what does that mean at the individual level? Well, if you break it down to the individual level, physicians and their staff are spending four to five hours per day on the reporting of performance measures. Physicians themselves were spending four hours a week on the data entry for performance measures, but then when you add in the additional staff that's hired to comply with the reporting requirements, uh, that's the number that they had uh, estimated, that total of nearly 20 hours a week.
0: So the ACP paper And I I know in the work you do with AMA, there's a lot of synergy between what ACP is doing about patients before paperwork and what AMA is is doing. Uh, There's a very, very nice synergy. You have a wonderful last paragraph to your editorial. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Well, I might read the whole thing. Let me see how it goes. The medical community has come to expect evidence-based medical practice. A similar expectation for evidence-based policy, regulation, and information technology has not yet been established. The ACP recommendations are a timely call for greater evidence-based regulation and a shared responsibility to create better value in healthcare. First of all, I love the way you wrote that paragraph, and I think that's the essence of the frustration that many physicians have. We get beat over the head to pay attention to evidence all the time and yet many of the administrative things that are done to us have no evidence behind them.
1: I agree with your take on this. I think that this is an area where we can actually explore and come to a better place for patients and for clinicians. And I think we do need to ask of policymakers, regulators, IT, that we have evidence-based policies and technologies. One of the ways I think we're going to be able to get there is by looking at EHR use data, by being able to look at the time costs of the requirements. How much time are we spending complying with performance measures? How much time are we spending on inbox? How much time are we spending with a physician being the secretary who is entering in the orders? You know, I think we need more evidence. Another area, Bob, where I think that there's opportunity for improvement to be very specific, is around verbal orders. Right now, if you're in a hospital-based facility, there are joint commission standards that would potentially make you believe you couldn't give a verbal order to a nurse to do an ear wash or to get an immunization or to set up a patient for a follow-up visit. There is some CMS language that could potentially uh, lead you to interpret that uh, in that way as well. And yet, I believe that that Apparent prohibition against verbal orders is causing a tremendous amount of waste in the healthcare system, and it's causing that waste for physicians who are spending hours typing in every flu shot for every patient every fall or typing in an order for a mammogram. Something that takes a matter of seconds to communicate from, by a paper checklist or to communicate verbally can take several minutes to do by order entry. And you multiply that by the hundreds of orders that are done every day, and we just don't have that kind of time to waste. And so I think that we really do need evidence-based policies and not just off-the-cuff policies.
0: So the editorial and the paper were written two years ago. Have we made any progress over the last two years? And what do you see ACP doing? What do you see the AMA doing? Uh, And especially the the things we're doing together to try to get to a place where we can focus on the patient rather than the chart.
1: Well, I am actually optimistic. I think that the work that the ACP has done in the patients before paperwork has been great, and it's been adopted by CMS. In fact, that very same language, right? Um, And CMS is doing has this initiative of patients before paperwork, and. I am hopeful that that will lead to more common sense in our regulations, a little bit more recognition of the cost of some of the requirements. There have already been some changes. For example, computerized physician order entry had been a requirement of meaningful use, but physician order entry was removed from meaningful use in its new manifestation as ACI, advancing care information, I believe. So it's no longer a a requirement that physicians be the ones who keyboard in the orders in order to be part of an EHR incentive program through Medicare. So that's a step in the right direction. We need to go further. Uh, We need to clarify some of the other arcane elements of policy that impact that. But I am hopeful that ACP's actions, AMA's actions are making a difference. At the AMA, we have a webpage that's called Debunking Regulatory Myths. And we have created this as a, an authoritative place where physicians and administrators can go for answers. And so we currently address three common myths on that site. One has to do with whether medical student documentation counts for billing, or whether the physician has to repeat that documentation for it to come to billing. Likewise, we address whether documentation done by patients or staff needs to be redocumented by physicians to have it count for billing. And the good news is, the answer for both of those scenarios is indeed the physician does not need to redocument what medical students, patients, staff members have documented has to attest that that's accurate, but doesn't have to redocument. And so uh, I think as we can get clarification around regulatory myths and relief from some of the regulatory pain points, we'll see that physicians have more time for face-to-face encounters with their patients, for undivided attention, for deep listening and deep thinking. And I believe that that's going to help patients and also help physicians.
0: Well, Chris, we've known each other for a number of years, and I've always been impressed with your thoughtfulness and your ability to translate being a great internist to understanding how to deal with the policy. So in the next minute or two to wrap up this podcast, what message do you want the uh, listeners to take out of uh, your editorial, the ACP's position paper, and this discussion?
1: Well, I think I want people to take away two things. One is that creating a manageable cockpit, creating doable work for physicians and other care team members is a shared responsibility, that it's not up to the physician alone to create a manageable, non-chaotic work environment, but that it's also the responsibility of health system leaders IT vendors, regulators, and standard setters, and that all of those stakeholders need to consider the impact of their decisions on the people who are closest to the patient. So that's one thing I would ask people to take away. And the second thing is that I believe there is cause for optimism, that because I believe in in the notion of the quadruple aim, that is what is good for patients, what's good for payers, what's good for health systems is also good for physicians. And when we can align uh, around that, I think outcomes will be better. So that if we can create work environments that allow physicians to meet their aspirations and their mission, we will also meet the other outcomes that we are after.
0: Well, Chris, thank you so much I hope that all the listeners will pass uh, this podcast on to their administrators and managers, maybe send it to politicians, because you've just done a wonderful job of highlighting the problem and the solutions, and I can't thank you enough for uh, being on the podcast.
1: Well, Bob, it's been my pleasure, and it's just wonderful to hear your voice again.
0: Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. As you could tell from this discussion, there are many administrative burdens and tasks that frustrate us as physicians. We also emphasized how much these frustrate patients. This podcast is not meant to just complain about the problems, but to point out that collecting data and working through organized medicine we have a chance of correcting some of these things. I'm delighted that Chris Sinski is working hard on this every week. Her knowledge of the data and the evidence is dramatic. I'm also proud of the American College of Physicians for having the Patients Before Paperwork project, an ongoing project, with continued emphasis and lobbying of Legislators and regulators. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org/oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical
1: judgment.